Great to see all of you here. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come before you today, as we draw our uh, series on the book of Proverbs to a close, we really pray that you will help us to concentrate, to bring together all the uh, things that we've been learning over the last few weeks and to really realize uh, how much it is that we need to live in light of your wisdom. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now here at uh, BTPC, we really have uh, our finger on the pulse, the spiritual pulse of society and uh, you know, we really know what people really want to learn from the Bible. And that's why today we're learning from the ant and the bird and the gazelle. Okay, now obviously uh, you won't find, I think most probably another sermon on the, this passage in the rest of Singapore because it seems like such a, a weird uh, thing to talk about, uh, these few topics that we're reading about, Proverbs chapter 6. But I think that uh, they're actually very, very uh, helpful to us because they help us to see how actually the whole of life needs to be lived out in view of our relationship to God and in terms of God's wisdom. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Proverbs and I know that some of you feel that the, the Bible study we're doing seems to be a bit repetitive and I agree, sometimes it's a bit repetitive, but I think it really grounds into our mind uh, just how connected the book of Proverbs is to the rest of the Bible and how the book of Proverbs is not just wisdom, and that's it, we can take it or leave it, but it is actually wisdom that we need to live by as Christians. Uh, we keep saying again and again that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, is the fear of the Lord. And if you keep following in wisdom, you will keep fearing God, and you will be blessed by God, not just in this life, but the life to come. Now today, uh, chapter 6 uh, deals a lot with the topics that we will see in the second half of the year, uh, from the chapters 10 to uh, 31, which deal a lot with uh, you know, very one-word proverbs about how to live. And today, in chapter 6, uh, these themes are actually introduced, which will be developed uh, in chapter 10 to 31, the themes of relationship, the themes of money, the themes of work. Uh, now, and I'm sure all of us need to know how to deal with relationships in a wise way, how to work in a wise way, and how to deal with money in a wise way. And as I was looking at this uh, uh, passage, I, I was really struck myself personally in terms of when you read it the first time, it's actually quite superficial and as you keep reading it, there's actually a lot more to mine from these passages. So I hope that you'll be able to, to see uh, what I'm talking about as, as we go through. Now, as my boss used to say, uh, many books that he's read are actually just expanded articles. Okay? So he said, actually, you can save your money by just reading the article that the person wrote because at the end of the day, the book is just the basic principle and lots of fillers, right? And so today, I really hope that as we look at it, we can see that it's got lots to say and uh, many books that we read out there uh, that you can go onto the internet and buy are just basically expanded uh, fillers of what these passages are saying. So let's look at the first section, which is verse 1 to 5 of chapter 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in pledge for another, and if you are tra have been trapped by what you have said, and snared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself, press your plea to your with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Now this is the first section uh, of uh, this uh, chapter that we're looking at. And it's kind of a bit weird or strange what it's actually talking about because it's not something that we're particularly familiar with. Uh, what seems to be happening is the son is putting up security or a guarantee for a neighbor. 
Uh, and uh, a present day situation could be something like this. Let's say you want to borrow money from uh, HSBC or UOB Bank or DBS and you go to the bank manager and the bank manager says, you know, yeah, we, we like your idea, we think you've got lots of potential, but we would like some security in order for us to lend you this money. And obviously you don't have any security. Maybe all you have is uh, your iPad or your I- iPhone, that's not going to work. So then you come to see, your, see me, la. you say, okay, look, you know, uh, I want to borrow this money. The bank says I need to, some security. Uh, would you put up your house as security or a guarantee in case I don't pay? And I, silly enough, says yes. Okay. Now that's the situation exactly which is what is in view here. Now the question is, if you look at this passage uh, closely, why would the son do that? So in verse 1 it says, If you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands and pledged for another... Now, if you have the ESV Bible, you'll see that uh, verse 1b actually says, if you have put up a pledge for a stranger, a stranger. Now, you could sort of understand why you would put up a security or a guarantee for a friend. I mean, obviously, if you come to see me and um, I'm your friend, I I might put up a guarantee for you. But why would you do it for a stranger? That's really strange, right? You know, it says there in verse 1, you, you put up security for a neighbor. But why would you put up a, a pledge for a, na- for a stranger, someone you don't even know? Well, according to the commentary, uh, in ancient times, uh, what would happen would be, sometimes somebody needs to borrow money and uh, they don't have a security. Uh, they don't have a guarantor. And what they would do is they would look for someone to actually give a guarantee to the lender, but because obviously this person is just a stranger to them, they would charge them a fee. So what's happening here is, you come and see me, and I say, okay, I will, I will put up my house as a guarantee for you, but I will charge you an, an interest on top of what you're borrowing in order for it to be worth my while to put up my house as a guarantee for you. So when you understand it that way and you look at the passage, you can then see that the son is not putting up a security or a guarantee for the neighbor or the stranger out of the generosity of his heart. You know, he's such a nice guy. He's such a loving person. He's doing it out of greed. It's, it's, a, it's a way of getting easy money. And I think that that's what this passage is all about. It's all about easy money. Because giving a security, giving a guarantee would be done usually for financial return. So here, what we're seeing in verse 1 to 6, uh, 1 to 5 really, it's not so much... Uh, the pledge or the security in view, but also the motivation for it, which is uh, monetary return, easy money. You already own your house, but you can get extra money on top of that by giving it as a guarantee to someone else. But what does wisdom say? What does the father say to the son if he is tempted to get easy money in this way? He says, yes, it's easy money, but it's a trap in verse 2. You've been trapped by what you've said. You've been ensnared by the words of your mouth. Uh, Then do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. And why is it a trap to give a guarantee or a security or a a pledge in this way? The reason is because uh, the father says that you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. So what's happened here is actually by giving your house or your business or whatever you own as a, as a guarantee for someone else, your future is now not in your hands, but your future now rests in somebody else's hands. And he says that that's a very dangerous trap 
and it's almost like an animal who is trapped by a snare or by bait and is trapped in a big net. Now, we can understand how that works because if I give a guarantee to you for your loan to the bank and uh, my house is not really now under my control but it's under your control because if you muck up and you fail to pay your loan back to the bank, then I stand to lose everything I have because I've guaranteed your loan. And that's the crux of what verse 1 to 5 is talking about. Uh, The trap that the son has fallen into is that he no longer has control over his future, but the control over his future is now in the hands of a stranger or even his neighbor. So I was thinking about how that applies to us today. Uh, Because obviously, uh, as I look among all of us, I can think of very few of us who would actually give a guarantee or security for someone's loan at the bank. I mean, I'll be preaching to maybe, what, one person here in the whole congregation today? But I've been hearing a few sermons about this passage, and I, and I think that it's more than just the, the, the concept of giving a loan or securing a loan in that way. But it's the concept where in the pursuit of easy money, you give your financial future away to somebody else's control. Now, one thing that I uh, remembered then as I was thinking through this passage and reading the commentaries and listening to the sermons is how my sister was telling me about how many of her colleagues, and even myself and I remember when I was working, uh, would be tempted by easy money to use credit cards to go on long holidays or to buy really expensive things that they couldn't afford. I remember I had a colleague at work when I was working in Australia, and uh, every year they would be taking trips to Europe, taking trips to America, and and they were earning the same as me, right? I, I hope they were earning the same as me because they were sitting next to me, right? And I was, and I was thinking, how can you afford it? You know, every year, I'm sort of just taking my car and driving up and down for holidays. And you're going to Europe, you're going to America, you're doing all these things. And he said, oh, you know, what I do is I just pay by credit card, then I spend the rest of the year paying it off. And uh, my sister was telling me at her workplace that people who, who buy these really expensive watches, uh, I, I guess... Tech Hoyer is not that expensive, but it is too expensive, right? You know, they buy Tech Hoyer watches, or, you know, uh, suddenly their friends will come and drive BMWs, which they buy on very long installments. And I was thinking, that's exactly what this passage is, is talking about, because your financial future is no longer in your own hands, but you've, you've given your financial future to the credit card company, or to the car company, or whoever you've, you, you've got the easy money from. So the principle here, I think, is if you don't have the money, right, you shouldn't be spending this money in the same way. Now, Mark Deaver, this uh, preacher in America who's quite well known, he actually uh, applied this passage to uh, speculative investments, risky deals. And I think that's also got a, uh, a, you know, a truth to it. Because the whole principle here of verse 1 to 5 is the idea of money, getting money, money for, for nothing, because you've already got your house and you're just giving a, a guarantee and you're getting money in return for that. And uh, he was talking about how like, uh, he, he preaches in uh, Washington, D.C. And he was saying, you know, like, if we want easy money, do we then forfeit our financial future to whoever we are taking these big risks with? And it occurred to me how I was sitting in the hairdresser one day and I was listening to this really interesting conversation with, with the, the lady next to me talking to the hairdresser. And uh, the, the lady was talking to 
the hairdresser and trying to convert the hairdresser, but the conversation was really weird to me. Because she was saying, oh, you know, if you pray to God, right, God will tell you which shares to buy. You know? And you know God is real. If you really have faith, you will know like, which shares to buy. And uh, she was saying, you know, you, can, you borrow money and you buy shares. You know, you just have to have faith. But that's not the real world, right? That's not what the real world is saying. The, the, the Bible here is talking about the real world. In the real world, when you try to get easy money like that, and you borrow money and it doesn't work out, who owns your financial future? It is the bank that you borrowed the money from. And I've heard of other Christians, and this is uh, something that is real, who actually don't have money and go and buy second and third properties in order to flip the properties to make money. But then when the financial downturn comes and the property market doesn't go up anymore, they're left with all these properties which they can't sell and then they lose uh, their financial savings. So it's the desire to, to get easy money, to get rich, which I think this passage is talking about. Uh, Andrew Leong in our congregation lent me this book about Bernie Madoff. He was the guy that lost uh, $20 billion on Wall Street. And it was amazing how uh, he was a Jewish man and he got all these Jewish families to basically give them all their life savings. Uh, if you read, read the book, it's really sad that people used to commit suicide after they lost all their money. And he was really amazing because you would give him your money and he would give you spectacular returns, better than any bank, better than the stock market, but he would never tell you what he invested in. And uh, he would never give you an account of how your money was doing. You know how you get all these monthly reports. He would never do that. He just said, give me the money and trust me. Don't ask me questions. I will just give you uh, the money back. And obviously that's why people kept trusting him. They were greedy. And that's how he was able to lose $20 billion. So I think looking at this passage here, God is saying to his people that uh, they are not to go for the trap of easy money, but rather they are to work. They are to work. Because work is not uh, something bad. Right? In the Garden of Eden, they were working before sin came into the world. Jesus worked as a carpenter. Paul worked as a tent maker. And that's why, uh, instead of going for easy money, they should work. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 which is up here. Is it working? Okay, sorry. That's good. Um, I think this passage in verse 1 to 5 really speaks of um, not just putting up security for people, but the desire to get rich. And when you want to get rich and, uh, and actually go for the easy money, you actually, as it says here, uh, fall into many traps and many temptations that pierce yourself. Uh, and in this passage in 1 Timothy 6, it actually goes on to say that the desire to get rich will actually take you away from God. So I think in the book of Proverbs it doesn't actually go as far as that but in the, in the New Testament it actually says that if you want this easy money it can lead you to actually wandering away from God. Now, in verse 6 to 11 it's actually related to verse uh, 1 to 5. Now in verse 6 to 11 it says Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. Now, a lot of uh, commentators say that actually verse 6 to 11 is connected to verse 1 to 5. Because why 
is uh, the son in verse 1 to 5 trying to make easy money by taking excessive risks by guaranteeing a stranger's loan or guaranteeing or making a pledge for a stranger's loan. Well, part of the reason many commentators say is because the son is lazy. He doesn't want to work for money, but he wants to go for the easy, easy kill, the easy cash. So here, in verse 6 to 11, uh, he is told, the son, is to, he's told to go to the ant and examine the ant. So in verse 5, he was to go to the gazelle and the bird and to see how he was to get free of the trap he was in. But in verse 5, verse 6, he is to go to the ant. And what is he supposed to learn from the ant? Well, the ant uh, has two things uh, that are pointed out here. It has no commander, no overseer, and no ruler. But yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So the first thing is, uh, the ant is a self, what we would call in today's terms, a self-starter. Right? He's a proactive person, he takes initiative, or she takes initiative, and uh, this person works without being nagged or, uh, you know, someone prodding it or forcing it to work. There's no manager or boss watching over it. The ant is just working. Uh, I'm not really sure what one of the preachers is saying. He says, you, know, you never see an ant stay still, right? I, 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 I suppose, yeah, I guess if you look at ants long enough, they're always moving, okay? But the ant is always at work and it doesn't sort of have someone who's always watching over it and making it work. It just sort of works. You know, it's, it's, like a, it's got a Duracell battery inside of it n- normally. But not only does the ant work, in verse 8, it, it works at the right time. It stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So the ant uh, doesn't work, wait to the last minute or uh, doesn't wait till it's too late. It works at the right time for the right purposes. And you're meant to compare the ant with the sluggard. Because the sluggard uh, says in verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Now, you, you can almost imagine uh, these are the words that actually come out of the lazy person or the sluggard's mouth as he, is, he or she is resting on their hammock. Okay? Uh, you can sort of imagine, you know, you're shaking the hammock away and say, you know, time to get up to do some work. And then you can just sort of imagine them saying, oh, you know, I just need a l- five minutes more rest. Uh, just give me a little more. You know, I just want to lie here a little more. I'm really tired. No, I worked really hard yesterday. So, like what the commentary says, the, the, the slugger doesn't actually say, no, I don't want to work. Rather, the slugger or the lazy person commits himself to a series of small surrenders. He's always deceiving himself or herself. He or she really means to get up and get working, get cracking, but they just keep delaying and delaying and delaying, and then at the end, nothing gets done. And at the end of the day, in verse 11, poverty will come, or scarcity like an armed man. So a bandit or an armed person always has evil intentions and will cause you harm. So that's what happened to the lazy person. Now, uh, I wonder whether uh, we, we, we are like that sometimes. We, we can be like this lazy person, except we don't have to uh, be sleeping all the time. You just repl- replace sleep with leisure, right? Okay? So instead of saying sleep, maybe computer or television or Facebook or something like that. And uh, we don't take the responsibility for our work. We don't get things done. We just keep saying a little more, you know, one more game, uh, right? Uh, half an hour more, or one program more I have to watch or, or something else. And we just keep delaying and delaying and nothing gets done. Now, uh, I realize that uh, in the context of Singapore, this is probably not a very applicable uh, proverb 
I mean, I, I heard people in England and America preaching this. And the guy in England said that, you know, people are not working very hard. But I don't think that's the case in Singapore. Because I think maybe we work really hard here. So, if, if you are a person who is already a workaholic, this is not a problem for you. Okay? <laughs> this is not a problem for you. Because actually, sleep is not bad and leisure is not bad. Uh, sleep is good. God gave us sleep. Gave, God gave us leisure. But what is happening here in this passage is, the sluggard or the lazy person, he takes sleep and leisure to the extreme. He overindulges in sleep, overindulges in leisure. If you're already a workaholic, you're not getting enough sleep and not enough leisure, then uh, don't feel that you need to get less sleep or even less leisure. Okay, um, there's this very famous preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from England. You might have heard of him. He was actually a doctor. And he used to say that if people come and see him with problems, the first thing that he would ask the person was, are you getting enough rest? Are you getting less rest than you normally do? Are you getting enough sleep? And the person says, no, I'm not getting enough rest. He would say, go and have some rest and then come and see me. Because he used to say that a lot of things that we struggle with, uh, depression, irritability, negativity, you know, a lot of it comes because we're just overtired. And I remember saying, which I read somewhere, and I can't even remember who said it, it said, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You know, so if you're really fatigued, you need to rest, rest. You know, don't read this problem, say, oh, I need to keep work, I'm working, I'm, I'm working even harder. Okay, so this passage is not saying that, uh, remember we, we said many weeks ago, over and over again, that each proverb must be exercised at the right time with the right person. If you're a workaholic, this proverb is not meant for you. If you're a sluggard or a lazy person, then you need to pay attention to this, uh, to this, um, to this passage. Now, the other thing that this passage is not saying is that every time you see a poor person, they are lazy. Alright? We, we've already seen in the book of Proverbs, and as you've done your Bible study, that people are poor, not just because they're lazy, but because of circumstances. You know, ill health, oppression, social injustice, just bad circumstances. Maybe they're righteous people, but, you know, there were evil circumstances and they were poor. So here, uh, in um, Proverbs chapter 19 and 28, the next slide, Okay? Uh, even the book of Proverbs recognizes that this is the case. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Okay, so here's a blameless man. He is not lazy, but yet he's poor. Again, in Proverbs chapter 28, a rich man may be wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. So, you can be poor, but it doesn't mean that you automatically are lazy. What this proverb is trying to say is, if you are lazy and you are perpetually lazy, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, then logically, in the world that we live in, you will be poor. Because uh, you will not be able to achieve the things that you are meant to achieve. But, the one thing that uh, we always notice in the book of Proverbs is, it is written in the context of community. Right? It's written in the context of God's people and God's land. And here, it is the son who is the sluggard. And when you look at other passages in Proverbs chapter 10, next slide, okay, um, you'll see there that when you are a lazy person, it just doesn't affect you. You don't just fail yourself, but you fail your community, you fail your family. So in Proverbs chapter 10, right, it says there in the, in the part, He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son. But he who sleeps during a harvest is a disgraceful son. 
uh, in verse 26, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. So, in, in the context of God's community, especially in the context of uh, what was written here, if you don't work and you're lazy, you, you actually are impacting your family. You're a disgrace to your family. You impact your community because you're not pulling your weight in an agricultural society. Uh, you know, in an agricultural society in harvest time, every able-bodied person should be there working to, to, to bring in the harvest. But here is this person sleeping away or not pulling their weight. And the New Testament, it says the same thing. Next slide. Okay, next slide. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are so exhorted to, to work, not just to feed themselves, but to contribute to the community, to the family. Okay, it says here in 2 Thessalonians, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. So here were some people, instead of contributing to the community, they were disrupting it because they were not busy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. 1 Timothy chapter 5. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what this passage is saying is that if you are a lazy person, it doesn't just affect you, but it affects other people, your family. Uh, maybe you're married, you've got family look after. It affects your community because you do not contri- contribute to your community. So it gives us a very different idea of work, isn't it? Work is not a bad thing. Work is actually something where, as Christians, we are told to do in the context of living in God's world, uh, contributing to society, looking after our families. Uh, these are responsibilities that we must take seriously as a witness to the world. We mustn't be like what it says there, vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, right? which is very irritating if you ever have smoke in your eyes or vinegar in your teeth. So this guy, uh, Rico Tice, who is a pastor in England, said that when he asked his children about their exams, he never asked them what they get. But he always asked his children, were you diligent or were you lazy uh, in your studies? Were you disciplined and studied at the right time, or did you study at the last minute? Uh, you know, how did you apply yourself? Because at the end of the day, he's not interested in the results, he's interested in how they apply themselves. And I think that as Christians, uh, this passage also shows that we have a responsibility to, to serve in society, to do something useful. I, I know of people who... Uh, have only worked two years in their home life. And not because they've only been in the workforce for two years. They are like my age or older. They've gone to university, overseas, and they work for two years. But because they're, they're, they're wealthy enough, they, they retire after two years' work, and then they spend their time uh, investing in the stock market during the morning and playing golf in the afternoon. Now, I don't think that's the right way to live as a Christian. I mean, it sounds like an interesting way to live for a little while, right? But... I don't think that's the right way to live as a Christian because as a Christian, it is not, we don't just work for ourselves, but we work because we are part of the community and we want to contribute to the community. Now, I don't know whether this is a relevant illustration, but it came to me this morning as I was reflecting on the sermon again. I remember reading an article in a Christian magazine uh, a while ago, 
I think it was Christianity Today many years ago, comparing Bono of U2 with Michael Jackson. This is when Michael Jackson is still alive. And uh, they were trying to say that, uh, use Bono as an illustration of how Bono is supposed to be a Christian person. I don't know how Christian he is, but you can see that in the, there's a translation of the Bible called The Message. Anyway, he's written in the back saying what a good translation it is, so presumably he's read it. But they were saying that, like, you know, if you look at Bono and Michael Jackson, were both very wealthy pop stars. And uh, they said, okay, what did Michael Jackson do with his time? Well, he built a zoo in his house. And then basically, I don't know what else he did with his time, except uh, get accused for being a pedophile, right? And then, Bono, what did he do with his time? Even though he was really wealthy, he went all around the world to all these really poor parts of the world to try to raise awareness for uh, famine and all sorts of relief. So, I was thinking, that's the Christian way of living, isn't it? You might have tons of money, but you must still work and contribute to society in some way possible. Okay, then the last section, in verse 12 to 19, speaks of uh, another issue. So we've looked at uh, money, we looked at work, now we look at relationships. Verse 12 says, A scoundrel and a villain, who goes about with a corrupt mouth and who winks with his eye, signals with his feet and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant, and he will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are testable, detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Now, as you read uh, verse 12 to 16, Initially, as you look at it, it might seem all uh, really uh, random thoughts, isn't it? Or things that God, God doesn't like. But actually, when you look at it, it always, it's almost like there are two sections. Verse 12 to 14, if you look at the Bible, right? Look closely at the passage, verse 12 to 14. And verse, uh, sorry, uh, and verse 16 to 19, they all end with the wicked person is the one stirring up dissension. He's the one causing strife. He's the troublemaker. He's, he's the one that divides people. Uh, and that's why in verse 19, it's almost an exact parallel to verse 14. This person is always stirring up dissensions, but in verse 19 it says, among brothers, it adds one additional fact. So here's this person who is always a divider, a dissenter, someone who's causing problems among brothers. And here brothers could mean anything from the smallest family unit to the biggest uh, unit, which is like uh, God's people. And I think that's what uh, this section is all about. It's about... Uh, People who are uh, stirring up trouble uh, and uh, destroying relationships among people. Now, as I was um, looking at this passage, I always remember that uh, during the Michael Jordan era, for those of you who are a bit younger, before Kobe Bryant was Michael Jordan, and uh, there was this guy who used to play Michael Jordan, and they used to call him uh, Sunshine. This is a guy called Cliff Livingston. His name was, nickname was Sunshine, and the reason they call him Sunshine was because any team that he used to go to, would, he would bring good vibes to the team. And the team would play better because he was just a really good encourager. just a very good people person. But here in this passage, in verse 12 to verse um, 19, there's someone who's the opposite of sunshine. Uh, this sort of person, whatever context they come in, they always seem to be bringing division. And uh, it's worse because if it's among God's people, then... Uh, it actually divides up God's people. I actually know of a case in Australia of a pastor 
who was a good preacher, good Bible knowledge, but then when he went to a church, he actually d- divided the church up because he, 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 he was always creating politics and distrust and suspicion among people. He was always dividing people up into different camps. So, how does this person do it? Well, what, you know, how does he bring dissension? Well, it says there, in verse 13, uh, he wings with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers. Uh, okay, how, how does that work, right? Basically, what it's saying here is this person communicates in a secret way. Because you know if you're winking to someone, right? You're usually signaling to someone that you're, you're, you're in the joke sort of thing. So even yesterday, I can't remember, someone did something to me. I went to the Helping Hand um, uh, uh, 25th celebration and this guy wanted to play a joke on this other guy. So he said something to this other guy and he saw me coming and he winked to me with one eye just to tell me not to, to, to spoil the joke. Because that's what winking does, right? You wink, it's like you're looking at someone, but the other person can't see. Or signaling with your fingers, emotioning with your feet. Right? It's like, all these are all secret signals. So one way that uh, people divide relationships is, they, they signal to one person, but they don't tell everybody everything. It's like, you know, you're always sort of like, uh, giving one signal to some, some person, and not giving another signal to another person. But the one theme that comes out in verse 12 to verse 19 is the idea of uh, speech. So here in verse uh, 12b, it says the scoundrel villain goes about with a corrupt mouth. The, the corrupt mouth here literally means, uh, if you look at your ESV, a crooked mouth. Someone says crooked things. If you look at uh, verse 17 and uh, verse 19, you see the same principle of, of, of uh, talking, the idea of talking, crooked speech. So in verse 17, it talks about lying tongues. And uh, in verse 19, it talks about false witnesses who pour out lies. So the idea of speech is, is really, really important because by our words, we can divide people and we can cause dissension, distrust among God's people or brothers or sisters. So, uh, this American pastor uh, gave this illustration. He said that... Um, there was this guy in his church who uh, came up to him or was telling people and also came up to him and said, oh, you know, so-and-so, he's not a very kind person. Not a very kind person. Now, when you hear someone say that he's not a very kind person, you immediately think, okay, what could that be? He's not a very kind person. You know, he's not very helpful. He's not very whatever. So the pastor was saying, what exactly do you mean he's not very kind? Uh, and this other person said, well, actually... He, Every time he wants to meet me, he always asks me to meet him really early in the morning. Right? So then the pastor said, that doesn't mean that he's not very kind. Right? He probably just wants you to meet him really early in the morning. But by you going around telling everybody that he's not a very kind person, you're getting other people to see him in a very bad light. And then another illustration I heard, all these are all true, uh, I presume, was another person went up to uh, other people and said, oh, you know, so and so, they have a very special relationship. And the said, what, what did, then the pastor also was saying, what do you mean special relationship? Because when someone says oh, they have a special relationship, it means so many things. Are they having a sexual relationship? Uh, do they have a, 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 you know, are they a clique so that other people cannot be friends? So then what do you mean special relationship? So I think what we say, our words uh, are very important. We must be very careful to say things uh, which are true and which do not deliberately stir up doubt or division among one another. We shouldn't have crooked words, or crooked speech. Now, uh, there was this book I was reading. 
I just read it this last week, where it says that all of us are millionaires. Every one of us here is a millionaire. Now, when you look at your bank account, you might not feel like it, but we are millionaires. And how are we millionaires? We are millionaires because we have millions of words to say. Okay? We are full of words. We have millions of words. And this person was writing, and he said, you know, we can use our words uh, to enrich people and to say good things about them, build them up and love them and encourage them. And, uh, and this book was right. He said, you know, you will, you, it will never cost you anything to use your words in that way. You'll never be bankrupt. You'll never run out of words to use to build up other people and to uh, build up uh, communities of people. But are we like that, you see? Uh, are we those who use our words to build up people or do we use our words to divide uh, each other? Now, we might not take it very seriously and we think, well, it's not, it's not as bad as uh, murder, adultery or stealing. But look at what uh, Proverbs says in uh, verse 15, a person who stirs up dissension like this, who signals to their feet and signals their fingers, look what it says there in verse 15, the disaster will overtake him in an instant and he will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Well, that's very serious, right? That God says, actually, if you keep doing this in a really uh, way, I don't know what the line in the sand is, but if you keep doing this, then God will judge you for it. And then verse 16 God hates these things. They are detestable to Him. The word hate here literally means hate from the deepest part of God's being. And the word here, detestable, is the word abomination. And the word abomination means it offends God's very character, His holiness. That means if you go about causing dissension and saying all these bad things about people, then God hates it. It's an abomination to Him. Now, what the Bible is not saying here uh, is that we should always go around saying good things all the time. Okay, like, oh, there is nothing bad that we have to say about people. No, that's not true, because then we would fail as uh, Christians. Because our responsibility as Christians is to help one another stay the course, stay as Christians, help one another if we are going off the rails. So if people are sinning, we need to say, look, you're, you know, you're sinning. If you have a wrong understanding of the Bible, we should go to people say, you don't understand the Bible properly. But you notice there, that the motive of the heart is very different. You do it out of love. You're going to the person and saying, look, this is not right. You know, uh, I'm saying it out of love and I'll, I want you to, to grow in your faith in Christ. But if you're actually speaking things about people which are not particularly true or you're sowing doubts in people's minds and you're not really motivated by love for that person, then, then that's exactly what this passage is warning you about. You must be careful of that because God hates it as an abomination to them. To him, sorry. Now, verse 17 and 19, if you notice it, it's very interesting because it goes from the top of the body to the bottom, right? Eyes, tongue, heart, feet, uh, and, you know, that's it. After the feet, there's nothing else. And uh, some commentators say, okay, that's just because you went from top to bottom. But I think it's also true that what he's saying is that uh, the eyes, the concept of the eyes here is what starts off uh, this person not actually changing and uh, being a dissenter or divider among brothers. Lying tongue, we can understand. Hands that shed, shed innocent blood, we can understand. A heart that devises wicked schemes. A feet that rush into evil. Okay, all those things we can understand. But why, why haughty eyes? Why does the book of Proverbs start with haughty eyes? Now, the eyes here are not literally talking about what's the problem with your eyes, that you need uh, to fix your eyes. It's actually the haughty eyes or literally rising eyes is criticizing the attitude of the person. Because someone with haughty eyes is looking down at you. 
looking down their nose at you. They are proud, they are self-important, they are arrogant. It's like when you, when you go to, I don't know, this only happens to me, but sometimes I go to a Paragon and I'm dressed in my t-shirt and shorts and my slippers and I go into that, some of these high-end watch shops, right? And then they see me wearing my Seiko. Nobody serves me, right? Why don't they serve me? They're looking down at me because they probably think, you know, I don't have enough money or more likely that I'm very unwilling to buy their watch. And, and that's what the, the, the attitude that's being uh, spoken of here. Uh, this person is very proud. They feel that uh, they look down on other people. But more than that, they, because they have arrogance and pride, they are unwilling to humble themselves before God and change the attitude to not divide or be a dissenter among people, to cause dissension among people. And here, uh, actually, is the opposite of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, slide up here. Okay? Because Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you have haughty eyes or rising eyes, you are not poor in the spirit, and you will not be in a position uh, to actually be humble before God and humble yourself before other people and love them. And therefore you will not change. And therefore we must not be proud before God. Now as we look at uh, just these three things, it's very simple actually, this passage, it only talks about three things. Right? Don't go for easy money. Uh, work diligently, not just for yourself, but for your community, for your family. And last of all, don't be a divider, don't cause dissension. All of this takes place within the context of us um, being God's people. You notice here he doesn't say, oh, you know, work hard so that you'll be really, really rich. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, don't go for easy money because, you know, there's other ways to get rich. Or it doesn't say, don't be a divider because that's the way to make friends and influence people. No, all of it is in the context of being God's people. Uh, If you do not live this way, then the danger for us is we are not actually living as God's people. Uh, our, our life as Christians acknowledges the rule of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not just on Sunday, but on Monday morning, all the way to Saturday, right? all the way to the night, till now. Right? So, God is the ruler of all of our life. So the way that we handle money, the way that we handle our finances, the way that we handle work, what sort of work we do, uh, the way we handle our relationships, our interpersonal relationships, all come under the control of God. And if they do, then we must listen to Him. We must listen to Him and truly seek uh, to live in a way which is pleasing to Him. And as we read here today, um, even though all these topics seem so different, but yet they're all part of the godly life that we must live as Christians. So let's not go for the easy buck. Let's work diligently and not just serve ourselves, but our community. And let's really encourage one another and not divide one another. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We truly want to recognize from your word that as God, you rule over every minute of our lives. Uh, you rule over the way that we treat our money. You rule over the way that uh, we work. You rule over the way that we conduct our relationships. We pray that we will not be tempted, like many people in the world, to go for the quick kill, the easy money, to gamble, 
with our, our finances and put our financial future at risk. We pray that we will work diligently uh, in the jobs that you've given us to serve faithfully our society, our communities, our families, to work not just for money, but because we are your people in this world, as the salt and light of this world. And also, in, in our church, in our families, in our workplaces, that we will not be those people who cause dissension and division among people by uh, secretly signaling to one person different messages from that which we send to other people, by saying things which cause confusion or distrust, which may not be true, and help us to see that all of this is part of living the godly life before you in this world. And we pray that you may help us to live it as long as you wish for us to be here. And uh, we just pray that you persevere us till Jesus comes again or we die. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.